millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Prospect Interview, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, editor of Prospect magazine, and this week we'll be thrashing out the question of referendums. We all know that they've shaken up our politics in recent years, but are they inherently bad and alien things for Britain? In our current issue, we've got two essays that come at that question from very different angles. In our cover story, the former Labour MP Chris Mullen explains why he fears the plebiscitary turn in our politics could, quite literally, take us back to the gallows. By contrast, Helen Thompson, the revered political economist of Cambridge, argues that our whole constitution has, and always did, rest upon popular consent, and that when party politics cannot secure this, referendums are inevitably needed to do the job. For her then, the Brexit vote was inevitable, and so too will be further turbulent votes on Scottish and maybe Northern Irish exits from the UK. Well, both can agree then that our politics is not about to go back to normal. They have very different takes on whether or not the term we've taken is a wrong one. So we thought it would be interesting to get them together and look at where things stand. So, Helen, amongst a lot of liberal fear about uh, sort of new plebiscitary style of politics that we've had since some um, 2016 and the referendum. You take a rather different tone and write in our magazine that actually uh, the question of consent, perhaps given by referendum, is as English as roast beef. Well, I wouldn't go quite that far. <laughs> I certainly think that it's got a history in the complexities of the British constitution as it has developed uh, historically and that there were various issues about membership of the European Union that were from the that from the start had a a strong proclivity to bring it to the fore and we can see that in the fact that the the when parliament passed the European Communities Act in back in 1972 the majority of MPs didn't think that there should be a, a referendum and yet within a few years of that 
within 1975 after the Labour Party comes to power. Again, there is a referendum on whether the United Kingdom should stay in the, the, the European Union. There's then the, the position that we've reached by 2005, where all the principal parties, as they then were, were committed to holding a, a referendum on the constitutional treaty that didn't happen because the French and Dutch voters voted the constitutional treaty um, down. And then if we go on to 2015, it isn't just the case that the Conservative Party promises a, a, a referendum if the Conservative, if they are to be the majority party after that election, but that Labour wants to promises that that in the event of a future EU treaty, that it won't simply be the case. It has to be a referendum on that treaty. That there would be then an in-out referendum. So, I, okay. undoing what had been passed in two thousand and eleven, that ensured that in any future treaty that there would be a referendum. So, and you make this point very eloquently in your in your, in your essay that certainly by you know, 2015, all kinds of people are promising all kinds of referendums on all kinds of things, you know, from uh, whether there needs to be a strength and devolution settlement in Wales to, um, you know, if Labour gets in, are we going to have a referendum on the um, alternative um, vote? Um, and, um, and uh, but you, you also say it goes much further back that we can look back to some of the kind of thinkers who we see as kind of, you know, the, the defining voices on the British constitution. And they were interested in this business of referendums 100 years ago. Yeah, and obviously the particular thinker who's interested in this is Dicey, which is ironic in a way because he's usually considered you know, the, the, the strongest proponent of the idea that at the heart of the British constitution lies only one idea and that is parliamentary sovereignty. Um, but in part, I think, because of the view he took over all of the constitution and in part because of his political commitments against home rule for Ireland, he ended up arguing, uh, starting from a set of essay, an essay in 1890, um, that there was a referendum that was implicit in the in the British Constitution, and it really went to this idea of, well, if there is parliamentary sovereignty such that, in legal terms, any parliament can legislate as it likes, what do you do if the parliament wants to legislate to change the constitution, and particularly what do you do if it wants to do that without it being able to claim the majority in Parliament being able to claim a mandate from a general election in order to do that. And that is how Dicey constructed his argument um, for the uh, for, for there being an implicit referendum in the Constitution. Now, the interesting thing here is, and this where it gets into some of the other complexities that I um, talked about in the in the essay, is, is that the driver for Dicey that gets into this judgment is definitely the union. And it's the union and issues about consent that raise all kinds of complicated um, question. So I see in lots of ways the complexities of the Constitution in regard to the European Union and the complexities of the Constitution in regard to the Union as running on parallel lines in some sense each other, at least from the 1970s. And I don't think it's surprising in the end that the hardest questions always come actually back to the UK Union because lots of ways in which the Constitution's worked has essentially been as responses to the, the issues that the Union creates. Yeah, and so, okay, there's some quite subtle points in there about, you know, if, if the people are going to be in charge, then um, uh, how are you going to decide which people it is that's going to have their say? Chris, before we go into your rather different essay, can you tell me, uh, you would have been very young at the time, but the 1975 referendum, do you remember it? And did you think it was a good idea at the time? Uh, I do remember it. 
I think it probably was a good idea at the time, uh, given the magnitude of the change that was contemplated and how controversial it was. I am not, by and large, an enthusiast for referenda. Um, I'm rather with Mrs. Thatcher that it's uh, a device of, uh, uh, what did she say, dictators and demagogues. It, 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 can, it can be, I'm not saying it necessarily is. And um, I mean, in a way, the core of your piece uh, in the same magazine is about the sort of flag waving nationalist turn of politics and the mood that the Conservative Party's in at the moment. How far or not do you see that as connected to the fact that we've been running this rather different style of politics since 2016, or if you prefer the Scottish one, 2014, a plebiscitary kind of which side are you on politics uh, rather than the traditional multi-party politics? Oh, oh no, I, I'm sure there's a connection. No, no I'm, sure, I'm sure there is. Uh, and I think it's destined to get a great deal worse if we're if we're not careful, we'll be wanting referendums on all sorts of things. Uh, to ha hold a fair referendum, I, I appreciate nothing is ideal in this world. You do at least need to have something resembling a free press. And I'm not certain uh, that, that we have that uh, here at the moment. We've got a press that's owned to a large degree, not entirely, uh, um, by a number of foreign-based oligarchs. And so do you think there is, you said 1975, probably it was OK to have a referendum because it was such a big change. Were you against the referendum in 2016 and, and the plethora of other referendums there's been on all kinds of things like, you know, whether to introduce a London mayor? Do you think that, that those were justified or not? That's when it began to get out of hand, I think. Um, I, 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 the Scots, of course, forced the issue with, with their, the nationalist demand for a referendum on the union, it's that's certainly a subject uh, which should be put to uh, a referendum. There is a question, uh, and perhaps Helen has a, an answer to this. What is an appropriate threshold when you're talking about a constitutional change of such enormous proportions as independence for, for, for one of the constituent parts of the UK or joining or not joining the EU? Is 51% uh, enough? I, I was quite surprised the other day when an elderly peer who lives up the road from me, uh, um, but is uh, a very strong Brexiteer, said to me after the referendum that he thought a 60% threshold would have been appropriate. <laughs> I mean, I don't have strong views on the, on the, on the threshold um, question. I think it can't be considered in isolation from the reasons why we have in some sense have a propensity to referendums in this country. And I think there is a there is a there is a paradox in a way in the fact that we have become a country that or for the whole of the United Kingdom has become a place where where referendums have become more common about big questions, certainly over the last decade than they've been in comparable um, countries. The reason why I'm nervous about thresholds is I think that if you look what happened when that was done in Scotland in relation to the devolution referendum in in 1979, I think that it it it, it did do some like it did do some long term um, damage to the union, and as I think it's likely that the questions in the future that are likely to be subject to referendum are union questions, then I think that it. Then I'm then I'm a bit skeptical about the idea that we 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 say okay only if sixty percent of 
Scottish voters want to leave, can they 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 leave? I I I just think that that is if you ended up with a vote where fifty five percent of Scottish voters voted to leave, and then the answer was well they can't. I I I just think that that so undermines the idea of the principle of consent that it's not really workable. Yes, I see I see the problem, but supposing you got fifty one forty nine in favour of independence, uh, um, does that mean it, that stands forever or indefinitely? If the nationalists can have another referendum after six or seven years, can't we? Well, I definitely think that the principle of consent goes back to the. It doesn't go away. If if it were the case that Scotland were to vote for independence, and then ten, however many years um, down the road, that there was a majority for reforming the union, I I, I think that that that's in that sense legitimate politics. Again, I think that the place where it's more tricky to say that is Northern Ireland, because is if 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 Northern Ireland were to vote to. To leave the union and to join the uh, and to join the Irish Republic, I think most people would think it was a little bit trickier to think that you just reopen that question once. If there were some opinion polls that changed that that suggested within a few years there'd been some change of sentiment. Well, that of course is the point. Do you just keep holding opinion polls until <laughs> they appear to be going your way, and then start demanding a referendum? What is an appropriate period between referenda? We were told in two. Uh, 14 was that the Scottish referendum date uh, uh, that uh, it was for a generation but a generation turns out to be seven or eight years by the looks of things well I think the clear difficulty with the argument of saying that the Scottish question was put to rest after 2014 is the Brexit referendum um, two years later because I don't think there's any doubt that the, the UK's exit from the European Union changes Scotland's position in relation to the union, both in terms of the potential that now a majority would prefer not to be in the um, United Kingdom, but also because returning powers from Brussels to Westminster changes the internal constitutional balance of power between the different bits of the union. The powers have got to be put somewhere. The UK government made a sort of sort of strong bid that they actually should go back to, or if enough of them should go back to um, Westminster. So Although I'm not a fan of Scottish, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm a believer in the union, but I think it is not unreasonable to suggest that the conditions of consent, of Scotland's consent to the union have changed since 2014 and that if there was a majority in Scotland, a clear majority in Scotland that would want another... Oh, no, not a clear majority, you mean a majority of one or... Well, I think this is where it gets tricky because then you could say it only really matters when you actually have a vote, and so you, you don't really want to be, if you don't, re, you don't really want to be following the whims of opinion polls. But I, I, I think, for instance, if the Scottish Nationalists had won a majority uh, in the recent Scottish Parliament elections, although that the UK government, the Conservatives, could have withheld consent for a little bit of time to to a to referendum, I think it would be quite difficult to do that indefinitely. I think there's a point where you'd have okay. to say. There is a democratic mandate for this. Supposing because, as you say, there's been a major change, Britain withdrawing from the EU and the Scots not being in favour uh, of that. So there's a case for a second referendum now. Uh, if the nationalists were defeated twice, I don't think anybody doubts that they'll be demanding a third one within whatever they consider to be a decent interval. Uh, it, it, in it, I mean, it is a feature of nationalist movements that they don't give up. Assuming they're defeated twice, which of course may not be the case, uh, how long should we wait before a third referendum is held? 
I think that the argument then falls away um, because I think that the, the if you look at it in, a, in the terms of the, the British constitutional tradition, that it's constitutional change that justifies referendums. So I think that if you said, if, you know, if for instance, the Westminster Parliament decided that it wanted to legislate away um, you know, the Scottish Parliament, I mean, that would be such a constitutional change that it would warrant um, a referendum. But I, I don't think that you, it could simply be the case that another referendum after a second one justified by Brexit could be, could be, would be warranted without further significant constitutional change. So you need a long, a long gap or a, or a big change. That's, that's kind of clear. Can I just ask you, if we go back on Brexit, do you think, I mean, we resolved this through a referendum and we ended up after a referendum with the Conservative Party in the pro-Brexit mood that troubles uh, Chris, not just because of Brexit, but because of unrelated issues. Would it be possible that this could all have been sorted out by the Conservative Party becoming an anti-EU party before the referendum and then, and then we wouldn't have needed the referendum? I actually think this is a really interesting question, Tom, um, because I think that in some ways it would have been a, a healthier development for our ways for, for our dealing with this question if the Conservative Party had be, become a, a withdrawal party and that the issue had been settled via a general election in which a party, that, that it could have put that in a manifesto to the electorate and either it would have been, you know, like voted into office as a majority or minority government or it would be not because what we ended up doing in the end, as we know, is actually not settling the question via the referendum. And that's the illusion that we did. We actually settled it by a general election mm. in 2019 um, because actually there became a sufficient number of MPs at Westminster who didn't want to accept the referendum result as the, if you like, the legitimate authority for um, exit, in part because they were concerned about the terms of the exit, in part because they became emboldened about opposing Brexit after the 2017 general election. So actually then it all became messed up with a, a fairly, you know, like polarising party contest anyway between Boris Johnson's Conservative Party, Jeremy Corbyn's um, Labour Party. And I think that it, it was resolved in that fashion, in that manner, in part actually because enough Conservative Remainers didn't want Jeremy Corbyn to be Prime Minister. So it wasn't actually Brexit, perhaps it was determining at least part um, of the vote. But we were settling it by this general election after we'd been through, if you like, the agony of having a, a referendum. So if it had divided up between the parties prior to a general election and had been then settled by a general election that way, that would have saved us, I think, some of the deeply polarising effects that having a binary question in a referendum does. And I think also the referendum changes people's relationship to politics. It becomes more personal. And I think that maybe that's partly what Chris is getting at in terms of saying that that, that that it can have an unhealthy um, it, that it can have unhealthy consequences for a, for a country's um, democratic politics and in some respects I think it, it did in ours. Okay, Chris. So let's talk about this connection. Then you've said it's there. You think between the kind of uh, referendum, which obviously on a very if you like a flag waving question, should we be in charge of Britain on our own again? And then it's it's ended up um, uh, a few years on now with a rather flag waving 
Conservative government. And, and, and do you see the connection as that direct then? Like, you know, people now identify as levers and they want a kind of tub-thumping, flag-waving lever in charge. I'm not sure how much of the public wants that, but that's what they've got. I mean, a number of Conservatives, including the former Chancellor Philip Hammond, have said that the party has been taken over by a cult. Um, now, one can debate the extent to which that's so, but I've, 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 heard, I've heard a number of Conservatives say that. This may only be a temporary uh, phenomena, um, but it seems to be fairly well dug in at the moment. The latest one, which isn't referred to in my article, was that the, the woman who's replaced Dominic um, Grieve, who was an excellent Conservative MP for Beaconsfield, uh, uh, is, is now demanding that the government should issue pictures of the Queen uh, uh, mm. to every citizen who wants one to hang in their front room. Like that, Thailand or something? Uh, uh, well, like Thailand or something, yes, actually. Uh, Thailand's a relatively advanced democracy by the standards of that <laughs> uh, uh, suggestion. But yes, yeah, that's... But it's about sort of identity, this stuff, isn't it? I mean, round here, I'm living in Yorkshire now, and there's there's loads of flags in a way when I grew up here 25 years ago, there weren't loads of like, you know, people with big gardens with literal flagpoles in them, running a Union Jack up them, maybe taking it halfway down for when uh, Prince Philip dies or whatever. And, and that, didn't, that didn't happen before. And I suspect it wasn't happening even five years ago. Well, the gene is out of the bottle. I think we've got quite a few flags uh, up here uh, in Northumberland. But uh, the gene is out of the bottle and it's, slightly a slightly dangerous moment uh, um, it remains to be seen if it can be put back again but what i fear is not so much the referendums that we have had some have been which have been on substantial issues and uh, uh, um, are relatively easy to justify whether one agrees uh, or not what i fear is that some demagogue running say for the leadership of the conservative party uh, um, will promise a referendum on something like the death penalty. Uh, um, in, it's, uh, I referred to this in the article, but uh, 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 um, the former editor of The Sun celebrated the, Brexit, the result of the Brexit referendum by saying uh, that we now, the next step was a referendum on the death penalty. Mm. And that's something I could see someone like Pretty Patel, who's openly in favour of the death penalty, uh, um, wanting to run with if, she, if and when, as I expect she will be, she's a candidate for the leadership. I don't say she'd necessarily succeed, uh, and she may not do it anyway, mm. uh, um, but I do think it's a danger now. We're, we're on a slippery slope. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, 
at Plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And, and um, so, Helen, in constitutional terms, we'd need we think, to have perhaps another referendum, which is one that Dominic Cummings has already talked about, the mastermind of vote leave, which would be a referendum. uh, He's promised to win by more than 52-48 to repeal the European Convention on Human Rights. I mean, that one, before we get on to the death penalty, whether that's a a live issue or becoming a live issue, but on, on the European Convention, we do know some Conservatives would like a referendum on that and it is a constitutional issue isn't it yeah i think you could clear you couldn't you could argue that it is a um a constitutional issue though i think it's more directly you know really related to the human rights act mm-hmm. uh, that that's the form that the constitutional question takes i mean i think i i don't see these i don't see these um, referendums in the future. I mean, as I said, I think the, the referendums that will still be to come in one way or another will be on union um, questions. I think mainly because they can, if if the if you have somebody uh, in charge of the Conservative Party that is keen on these things, and they can go in the Conservative Party um, manifesto, is is that is is that, that there's not the same I think difficulty that the European Union posed for dealing with these questions in terms of party politics within this country, because the problem. The, the, you know, if you if you go back to the origins of Cameron's problems, they really come out of the the, the Lisbon Treaty. You know, pretty much, you know, there's a there's a you know, uh, uh, what's the way of putting this? A strong story to tell, a singular story, really, from Cameron trying to deal with the Conservatives' opposition to the Lisbon Treaty in substance, and to his op- their opposition to parliamentary ratification of the Lisbon Treaty, through to that promise that he made in January 2013 in the Bloomberg speech. And then the referendum promise in the 2015 manifesto and the referendum um, itself. And the problem is, is that you have constitutional change that was coming within the from generated from within the EU itself that couldn't be fitted into the cycles of British electoral politics. And so that's why you can't have party manifestos that can deal with the um, problem because you can't. If you're the Conservatives in 2010, you can't say um, we promise to repeal the Lisbon Treaty because it's already it's already been passed. It's or it's it was already EU um, law, and it's not for one member state to um, undo it. And so, it's that interaction I think between the this issue of consent in the British Constitution and the way in which the EU worked via these treaty changes that generated the pressures for referendums. Now you just don't have that if you're talking about the death penalty or you're talking about the about the uh, about the Human Rights Act. Uh, in the in the same way, and if they can be dealt with in terms of the general context of British politics, which works through general elections and parties fighting each other at, at general elections, and they're more likely to go that way. Not least because generally politicians don't really like 
reference. They might sometimes have to have them for the reasons that we've been talking about, but that doesn't mean that they actually like them, not least because they have lots of unintended consequences, as both parties have found out this time. But isn't the danger here um, precisely that they didn't used to like them because they didn't really want to kind of hand over power to the public and see what happens because they couldn't, you know, necessarily foresee what happens, as you say. But now, you know, Boris Johnson effectively looks like he's kind of come out of that and cleaned up. He looks very secure in power for the moment. And um, if, you know, Dominic Cummings and co are no longer obviously at Boris Johnson's right hand side, but if he's thinking, yes, strategically, we could run another referendum with a guaranteed better result than we got on leaving the EU with, uh, you know, getting rid of the European Convention on Human Rights, that almost you might be tempted to run with that just to make a point. There's lots of other governments around the world at different times have run referendums because they think they're going to be popular or make a point, aren't they? Hungary run, run one, didn't it, on something to do with the EU to make a sort of anti-immigrant point. And, and you could be tempted in the same way to run one on, uh, on, on, on the Convention or the Human Rights Act. I mean, but that, that logic presumes that the referendum was successful for Johnson. I would say that the, the referendum came very close to destroying Johnson's career. If you look at, the, if you look at what happened um, afterwards, it was only because Theresa May was a, unable to get that withdrawal agreement that she negotiated, not him, obviously, through the... Um, through the House of Commons and he got his chance to lead the uh, Conservative Party after the Conservatives ended up with 9% in the European parliamentary um, elections result. I mean, Johnson kind of effectively came back from the political death, dead, so to speak. And the thing that gives him his authority within the Conservative Party now and the strength within British politics is the 2019 general um, election and as I say, there's a. I think there, there was a scenario in which his career was finished by what happened in the aftermath of the referendum, um, because a whole set of events, if you like, were put in motion by what happened, the unexpected nature of the victory, the falling apart of his axis with Michael um, Gove, that 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 led him out of the led him out of the cabinet and seemingly into the the political wilderness for a while. And I think if you go back to then looking at you know like David Cameron's. Um, relationship with referendums he, you know he came pretty close to messing things up quite badly in the Scottish referendum and obviously then his luck completely ran out I mean I'd say it wasn't just luck it was poor judgment that caught up with him over the 2016 um, referendum so my instinct is still that even the ones in the Conservative Party were in favour of Brexit found what the referendum put into play much much tougher than and more difficult than they thought Mm. But you, Chris, you, you you think that there might be a mood that says, well, if there are these issues out there where maybe the, the, the average voter is uh, in a kind of more hardline place, perhaps than the, you know, the BBC and House of Commons kind of uh, class as a whole, then someone ruthless in the Conservative Party could say, well, now's, now's the chance to play by the rules of our own game. Yeah, I, I do. I do. Yes. Uh, um, and, and as I said, it's possible to think of one or two candidates who might run with, uh, uh, with something irresponsible like that. I, I, if, just to go back to the death penalty again, uh, and this, uh, um, it of course has always been an issue of, of, uh, of conscience, and so there's never a three-line whip on it, or there hasn't been up till now. Uh, well, not for many years anyway. Uh, um, but uh, when I was first elected to Parliament, which is 1987, Every time a Criminal Justice Act 
was going through Parliament, and there have been rather a lot of them, somebody would, would attempt to amend it uh, to bring back the death penalty. There were regular features uh, of, of almost, well, I, almost every two or three years when I was first elected. And of course, once it became clear that we'd made rather a lot of mistakes uh, in relation to the death penalty uh, by the mid-1990s, all that faded away. Even Michael Howard, I remember, uh, who, when he was Home Secretary, said he'd changed his mind as a result of those cases. So we, I did think, I think most people thought, the issue was dead and buried, but I fear it might not be. Mm. Well, so that's one troubling uh, for those of us who are liberal kind of uh, issue you could see coming back. I mean, what should be the, we haven't actually taken this question head on, what should be the criteria for what is a legitimate question or a potentially legitimate question for a referendum? Does it have to be a constitutional issue as far as you're concerned, um, Helen? I think that if it, if it if it if it isn't, it takes us into new territory, and then it needs really like it needs particularly careful thought about whether it was something that we would want to be we would want to be doing. And, and actually, paradoxically, you could argue that actually needs would need a referendum to do that. If it's, if having referendums on non constitutional issues is a significant constitutional change, then that itself has got to be. That has itself has got to be legitimated. But we do we do have way. them sometimes at a local level on really quite small things. There was something to do with uh, the tram system in Manchester. You know, do you have a congestion charge and use the money spent on a um, ex- extension of the tram network or something? And uh, there's various talk about them for local council tax if it goes above some particular threshold. And we can look at places like California, which have got a tradition of this going right back and um, it does quite often I think Helen um, end with politics that's just sort of stuck doesn't it well I think that we are definitely entering a you know or we are in an age where there's going to be you know considerable debate about the the structural forms if you like that democratic contest should take and the argument that we've seen you know made by including some people in parliament you know, that there should be more um, there should be citizens' assemblies. I think that that, that is, uh, I, you know, I'm somewhat sceptical about this, but I think that there's, there's there's definitely obviously an argument for it. And I think there are some people, more people that are, in, are interested in this than they were a decade ago. And I, I think that some of the issues around climate change may well encourage people to go in that direction. If you look at what's happened in France, you know that that Macron essentially ran a sort of uh, quite a long citizens' assembly around climate change and basically said that you know he would take to the French assembly the proposals that came out of it. He actually then rather retreated from that um, in practice in terms of of what he did, but. I, I I can see in some ways that being, or the pressure for that at least being part of the direction of um, travel, perhaps more than referendums off on non-constitutional issues. Yeah, well, I guess if you think of a citizen's jury type thing, Chris, that's at one level more reassuring in the sense that you're not worried about the whims of capricious press barons to the same extent because it's you know people are actually going to discuss things and have them out but on the other hand if you're a sort of democrat who wants to see some democracy maybe they're not as effective either because they're more potentially manageable by the politicians who are already in charge well i may be very old-fashioned but i favor elections uh, uh, it used to be i think it still is a, a, a cardinal principle that an mp is not a delegate 
uh, he's uh, um, sent there to exercise his or her judgment on the issues of the day. And if the public don't like his or her judgment, they can chuck him out or her out come a, a, a general uh, election. But I, I, who, who would appoint these citizens' assembles? Are they they're self-selecting, aren't they? They're whoever turns up and shouts loudest. Well, they get um, they get polling companies and things to pull them together, don't they, Helen? The thing is, is that I mean, as I say, I'm skeptical about this too. I mean, because they're not the the, the idea is is that you you basically use lottery, the principle of lottery, to select a representative group of um, citizens. But you can't compel people, obviously, to participate in them. And so they actually, in practice, tend to be dominated by certain kinds of people. That's certainly what happened in relation to Macron's one on one on climate change. I just think that it's an area where you can see more people making the arguments for them. I mean, I think that the, 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 the danger of them, in a way, is actually, which doesn't, which actually sort of, is compatible with what you said, Chris. Is I think they they have a, they have something actually though of a technocratic bias to them, because they also involve essentially, you know, the injection of of expertise into the deliberation being led by um, experts. And in that sense, I don't think it's really a coincidence that Macron's the the major European politician who's been keenest on them because because obviously, in part, the whole way in which Macron sort of set himself up as a as a political personality is a is as a technocrat outside the or a certain kind of technocrat anyway outside the the, the French party system. Um, you do say let's have a final word now on France. In the a generation ago, people would have said that the Fifth Republic from from the late fifties on was a regime that did go in for referendums from time to time, Helen. But you say they started losing them. <laughs> they've they've gone right off them is that right and do you think that might end up happening here as well well i think what is interesting is is that the fifth republic under de gaulle was quite like referendum centric it was after a referendum that de gaulle actually lost um power uh, and it was actually a version of the principle that I would say has been implicit in the british constitution is that constitutional change had to be legitimated um by a um by a referendum and the french were political class was always nervous about the application of this principle to the, the European Union, or at least they were in relation to matters pertaining to France, because they did actually hold a referendum on whether the countries that joined with Britain, United Kingdom in 1973 could join. The thing that really, if you like, put the fear of God into the French political class about referendums was what happened um, with the constitutional treaty in 2005 and the French voted no, because that meant that the as things stood within the EU, they had to def- would have to have defaulted back to the Nice Treaty, which the French were very unhappy um, about, and so they had a quite bitter, or that quite bitter um, presidential election over what to do about the constitutional treaty and how to have another treaty, the one that Sarkozy um, won. And essentially, since then, the idea really, I think, in France, amongst most of the French politicians, of having another EU treaty became taboo, precisely because they just dislike the idea so much of having to reckon with this referendum question again. And my argument is, is though, that if you have got discontent in democratic politics, it hasn't got anywhere to go, because essentially the politicians have said, we don't want you voters expressing opinions that we don't like in referendums any longer, it goes somewhere else. And I'm not suggesting there's a direct line with the Gilets Jaunes, but I think that, 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 that French politics has struggled over the last five or six years to find outlets for democratic discontent. 
What do you make of that argument then, finally, Chris, that if you don't go for these referendums that might be ugly, might be bumpy and all the rest of it, you'll end up with a discontent showing up somewhere else, you know, in the, in the street or in dangerously low turnout? Well, when discontent shows up in the street, uh, as a politician who believes uh, in regular elections, although one would listen carefully to what the sources of that discontent are and, and do what one can in order to uh, mitigate them, in the last analysis, it needs to be resisted. You cannot surrender to the street or to uh, uh, some particularly charismatic local demagogue. Uh, 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 a veto on the democratic process. I, I, I'm for Parliament and, and MPs who make, as I say, judgments, uh, not as because they're delegates, uh, um, but on the basis of the evidence. Fabulous. Thank you both very much. You can look up both Chris's essay and Helen's on the Prospect website. That's all from us for now, but we will be back next week. And in the meantime, stay safe and leave us a review if you're minded. Thanks very much. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.